Amen. Are y'all excited? Are y'all excited? Look, we are uh, standing in unprecedented times, and I leave again tomorrow morning. So I want to make the most of the opportunity. And our truncated worship will be made up by the closing. We're going to finish stronger than we started, if that were possible. These unprecedented times remind me of where Psalm 4 says, Many are asking who can show us anything good. I want you, church, victorious church, to know that victory is ours and it's found in the true gospel of Jesus Christ. There are no solutions outside of the gospel. Today I passed by a COVID testing facility. The line extended for miles. It was thousands of cars. It overwhelmed Westheimer and it stopped traffic on Highway 6. I couldn't help but notice with hundreds and hundreds of people there because we're inching forward in traffic. I did not see LCM members in that line. Apparently going to church is not what makes you sick. It's happening to those that do not go to church as well. Magical mask faith sequestering and disobeying the commands of God to assemble or not helping the lost masses. It is a vain hope for deliverance in the body of Christ. I can't help but be reminded that Mordecai spoke to Esther in the fourth chapter and twelfth verse. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all of the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. LCM, I tell you, you have come to this time in this position that God might show His deliverance. Let the naysayers say what they must. We will be standing when this is over. And they will have to live with their actions during this time. I'm persuaded that trusting in the living God is a much better venue for our efforts than hiding in shame. There was a man in the 1800s that I admire very much, and you've heard me quote him many times. We will a thousand times sooner die trusting only our God than live trusting in man or the CDC. And when we come to this position, the battle is already won. And the end of the glorious campaign is in sight. We will have the real holiness of God. Not the sickly stuff of talk and dainty words and pretty thoughts. We will have a masculine holiness. One of daring faith and works for Jesus Christ. If you are sick in this room tonight, there is healing found in the name of Jesus. More than that, you have transformed your sickness into something glorious by defying its effects and worshiping the living God anyway. By the way, I was tested today. Not at a CDC facility. Right there at that altar around 2 p.m. It was confirmed that I am 100% Holy Ghost positive tonight. Anybody else testing positive tonight? It's time to reflect on the things that we've been taught. 
All of you who have been through marriage counseling will recognize Psalm chapter 4 and verse 5. Offer right sacrifices and trust in the Lord. Many are asking, who can show us any good? Let the light of your face shine upon us, O Lord. You have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. Offer right sacrifices. Do what is right, not what is wise, not what is expedient, not what is in conformity with the media and the masses. Do what is right. This is where our confidence comes from. When despair creeps up on you, send it out of your mind. Put it out of your life. Kick it out of your home. Send it back to hell where it belongs. We declare what verse 7 says tonight. You have filled my heart with greater joy. Anybody in here got joy? It's an amazing thing. COVID cannot take away my joy. My joy was given to me by the King and His victorious gospel. And no one can take it from me. Not circumstance, not a demon, and certainly not a city official. I have great joy. Do you know what that makes me? Same thing it makes you. Strong. Nehemiah 8.10 says that the joy of the Lord is our strength. No talk of despair. We speak the words of joy in this house. Tonight, we're going to remember Psalm 36. You're not going to turn there because all of you are going to Corinthians 15 where you will park for the remainder of the evening. But I'm going to read to you about the love of our God from Psalm 36. This begins in verse 5. Your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness is what? Faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains. Your justice like the great deep, O Lord. You preserve both man and beast. My God can preserve me. My God can preserve even my dachshund. They say that my dachshund can get COVID. I'm not scared and neither is he. We are trusting in the God that will preserve both man and beast. How priceless is your unfailing love. I would not choose chloroquine over the love of my God. I would not choose reliance on the CDC above reliance on the Lord our God. Both high and low among men find refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights. For with you is the fountain of life. He's our only source. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. I want you to know that Yahweh Sabaoth is a fountain of life. If you get in His thoughts, if you get involved in His emotions, if you get in line with His commandments, you will begin to see light all around you. When you are in His light, you begin to see light everywhere. There's no downward speech. There's no downcast faces. When you're in the light of the Lord, all you see is light everywhere you go. I'm not presenting the glass half full. 
The glass is half full. Tonight, we're going to stare into that great light. The great light of the victorious gospel. This is going to be a bare knuckle brawl. It's going to be a brave and bold embracing of what the gospel actually is. Rather than what men have tried to make it. A hundred percent of tonight, you will be in 1 Corinthians 15. I won't ask you to turn not one time. I'm going to refer to passages outside to illuminate the certainty of the gospel's assertions. But in every single case, I've provided a slide for you. They'll be there for you to download. I want you in Corinthians 15. Are you there? Tonight, as we stay in this glorious chapter, you'll enjoy the exposition of the text because it will expose lies. It will execute the opposition to the truth that we're hearing all around us. The great lion of Judah is about to free his body from the oppression of low expectations. I still trust my God. Do you? We're going to enter into the victorious gospel. Are you ready? Are you ready? Then we begin in verse 1. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel. Somebody say, the The gospel. There shouldn't be more than one. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. The word for gospel here is euangelion. Euangelion. That is a a fun word to say. I want to show you on this slide, it's made up of two compound words, good and proclamation. The gospel is a good proclamation. In the New Testament, spoken only of glad tidings of Christ and His salvation, although the word has roots that go before that. I want to warn this body that there are different gospels that are floating around out there. And they're prevalent and they're accepted in our time. This word, euangelion, it appears in the Older Testament in the Septuagint version. I want to show you that. That would be our next slide. Running with a different gospel. In 2 Samuel 18, beginning in verse 22. Ahimaaz, son of Zadok, again said to Joab, Come what may, please let me run behind the Cushite. But Joab replied, My son, why do you want to go? You don't have any news that will bring you a reward. You do not have Evangelion. You don't have it. He said, Come what may, I want to run. So Joab said, Run. Then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Those traveling with a false gospel always seem to get further than those that have the gospel because there's no resistance. Paul used identifiers for the gospel, the gospel. I want to show you a few. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, or rather of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the evangelion of God. This is one of the ways that he defines it. 
The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The Evangelion of God was announced through prophets. It's not a new invention. It hasn't been repackaged in some new way. The one that Paul calls of God is the same one that was announced through the prophets. Next, in Romans 1.9, God whom I serve. No, same slide. Go back, honey. In Romans 1.9, God whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of His Son. The Evangelion of His Son is a witness how constantly I remember you. Listen to the identifiers. Evangelion, gospel of God. Evangelion, gospel of His Son. And look at the third one on the same slide. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Paul took ownership because he understood it. He knew that others didn't and he wanted there to be a distinctive. He wanted you to be able to see the difference between the gospel that he preached and the one that Ahimaaz ran with. I want you to notice while you stare at that slide, the woke gospel is not in this list. Neither was the racial reconciliation gospel. Abimbola and I don't need to be reconciled. It's already happened. And and he's not going to apologize for being blessed with more color in his skin than me. And I'm not going to walk around with my head hung low as if I enjoyed some privilege by virtue of being pasty white. I am privileged. And so is he. We are privileged to be in Christ. This is true because the victorious gospel of Jesus Christ has already answered the issues of our day. The problem is that men are ignoring the answer and they are actually extending the problem that they purport to fix. Paul was serious about diversions from the gospel that he called the gospel of God, the gospel of the Son, the gospel that he called my gospel. He was serious about diversions perversions and alterations of the gospel. Listen to this extraordinary warning. Galatians 1.6 I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you. By the grace of Christ in turning to a different evangelion which is really no gospel at all. Evidently some people are throwing you into confusion. This is before smartphones. This is before MSNBC. This is before CNN. This is before we had such cowards in such high places. No gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the Evangelion of Christ. But even if we, Paul speaking about himself, even if we, Or an angel that fell in primordial past. No, it's not what he says. Even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, Let him be eternally condemned. 
Who wants to make sure you have the right gospel? Who thinks this sounds pretty stringent? You know, his stringent warning is not off base. Do you remember that this was mentioned in the LXX? I want to show you the only other time in the LXX that we hear the Evangelion mentioned. It's in the Nevi'im. In 2 Samuel 18, we covered Ahimaaz. He ran with a gospel that was untrue, and he disappears from the biblical narrative after that point forever. Now, this is the other occurrence. It's 2 Samuel 4.10. When a man told me Saul is dead, and he thought he was bringing me Evangelion, I seized him and put him to death in Ziklag. That was the reward I gave him for his gospel. The king of the Jews is not interested in his story being amended. He's not interested in somebody revamping it for social consumption. He wants us to understand the actual gospel. Now, with that said, who wants to stand up and tell me with absolute certainty that you understand the gospel that Paul preached? Yeah, I understand. That's why we are preaching it tonight. Let's go back to Corinthians 15 and verse 1. You should still be there, right? Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received and on which you have taken your stand. Somebody say, take my stand. He is going to explain the true gospel throughout this entire chapter, not just the first few verses, and I'm going to prove that to you tonight. Verse 2, by this gospel, as opposed to alterations, deviations, and perversions, by this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. How important is it that we have the actual gospel? Everything. It's vanity if we do not. For what I received... I passed on to you of as of first importance. The first thing I want to talk to you about is received and passed on. This is a Jewish liturgical phrase. It comes from the Pirakea vote, which was in use at Paul's time. The quote that you see on the screen comes from Paul, the Jewish theologian by Dr. Brad Young, a Semitic language expert at Oral Roberts University. Here, Paul employs what may be called technical language. In Jewish literature, the verbs deliver and pass on are used to describe a chain of tradition and how it is preserved from one generation to another. According to traditional Judaism, Moses received the oral teachings of the Torah on Mount Sinai. He delivered what he received to Joshua. Likewise, the oral law has been received and passed on to each subsequent generation. I want you to hear what's at stake. Paul says, you have already received this gospel and I'm reminding you of it. You have to take your stand on what you've already received. If you do not, then you have believed in vain. And then he uses phrasing that to every Hebrew hearer of what he's saying implies that you are listening with the same intensity with the same certainty, the same presence of mind, as if Moses were dictating from the mountain. Can we say that he's serious? He didn't just say he received it and he passed it on. 
The NIV says, as of first importance. That's our next slide. First importance means first and foremost. It can be taken first in time or first as importance. But it seems likely that Paul intended both meanings here. First and foremost. I didn't say that. That comes from the UBS uh, Testament Handbook series. This is a scholarly work on just that one word. This was so important to Paul that he did not wait until they went through advanced combat training. He did not wait until they had been Christians for 10 years. Those of you that got married and then found out 10 years, 20 years later, what you agreed to when you got married, Paul didn't want that to happen with the gospel. He wanted you to understand from the moment that you believed what you signed up for. Do you want to know what you've signed up for? He did this from the first, and he did it with the most importance. I would say that's eye-catching. 15.1. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This is where everyone stops, and that would be a serious mistake. Can you imagine going through the buildup that we've just gone through to memorize a single sentence that every demon in hell believes is true? That that would be a serious mistake. I want you to understand there are no spiritual powers that don't know that Jesus died. That don't know that Jesus was resurrected. They all know it. They all believe it. And it doesn't do anything for them. This is where we have simplified the gospel to a children's nursery rhyme. And it's a mistake. Pick up in verse 5. And that he appeared to Peter. And then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. Most of whom who are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Paul hasn't lost his train of thought. Having introduced the resurrection, he is letting you know that the physical nature of Jesus' resurrection was observable. It was observable by more than 500 people. There are instances in the word of him being touched, of him eating, of him appearing through a wall and sitting with men. And Paul wants you to know that the resurrection is a physical reality. That is a part of the gospel, but he is still not done. Let's pick up in verse 7. Then he appeared to James. Then, then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle. Because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. 
whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. That phrasing has caused many people to be sure that we stop here. Tonight, without any question, that will be an untenable position. It simply cannot be corroborated with what you're going to hear. Why then did he say it? Because every one of the men that would herald the gospel saw Jesus physically glorified. Every one of them. That is his point. He is establishing the physical nature of the glorification of Jesus Christ. This is like an introduction, like a chapter heading. But he still hasn't explained the gospel that he's drawn so much attention to. He's about to focus in on the primary goal of the gospel. Are y'all in verse 12? Say you're there. That'll give me a chance to drink some water. Paul is a good Jew and he anticipates questions. He anticipates objections and he eviscerates them while he is making his argument. Verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Do you hear the shift? If Jesus Christ has raised, then how can some of you say that there is no mass resurrection of the dead? The reason that he mentions Jesus' resurrection is to get to his main point. The mass resurrection of believers. Listen to how fluid that is as we move forward. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. His topic is not whether or not Jesus has been raised. It's what Jesus' resurrection means for everyone else. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. Jesus' resurrection is unto something. It is unto the resurrection of the saints. And if it didn't happen for Jesus and didn't happen physically, then it won't happen for you. And that would render the gospel useless vanity. More than that. We are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead. But He did not raise Him if in fact the dead, as in all dead human beings, are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits, somebody say first fruits, of those who have fallen asleep. Now, our next slide is about first fruits. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when you enter the land, which I am going to give to you and reap its harvest. Anybody want to harvest? Then you shall bring in the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord for you to be accepted. Without the first fruits, you are not accepted. 
I want you to understand that Paul knew this passage. That's why he's referring to it. Jesus Christ as a glorified human shows that you can be accepted as a glorified human. That's why he calls him the first fruits. The gospel begins but does not end with Jesus' crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. That is the first fruit of the hope of all humanity. The gospel of Jesus Christ must include the hope of all humanity. Why is he talking about the resurrection the way that he does? And did he just preach Christ's resurrection or is there something more to it than that? I want you to notice this history pattern in Acts. Acts 4-2. They were greatly disturbed, the religious establishment. Because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They are not proclaiming Jesus' resurrection alone. What they are preaching is that in Jesus Christ, you will resurrect. There is no dying and going to heaven here. There is no raising a hand so you can inherit Disney World. What they are preaching from the beginning of the book of Acts is in Jesus Christ, you can be resurrected. This is what Paul is reminding the Corinthian church of, and it dominates this entire chapter. But it's not just Acts 4-2. In Acts 17, they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Not the good news about Jesus and His resurrection. The good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Are you beginning to feel me yet? In Acts 17.32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, not a resurrection of the dead, not Jesus' resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of the dead. Some sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. In Acts 23, I stand on trial because of my hope that Jesus was raised from the dead. No, I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. Acts 24.15 A resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Acts 24.21 The resurrection of the dead. It's consistent. And some of you Bible scholars may be glancing through Acts and say, No, no, no. They said Jesus raised from the dead. Yes. Always so that they could point out what that does for you. Because the gospel is about the victory of mankind in Jesus Christ over death. Not that you believe He conquered it, but that you believe Him conquering it causes you to conquer it. Man, think about its implications for our time then. How will you conquer death if you can't conquer the sniffles? We could list passage after passage, but we're not going to. I'm not going to tell you about Matthew 22. I'm not going to tell you about Luke 20. We're not going to cover John 6, John 11, Romans 6, or Philippians 3. We're not going through Hebrews 6 or Revelation 20. We're not going to cover all of the promises to the patriarchs. But they are about the resurrection of the dead. Jesus Christ is the first fruits, the proof of the believer's resurrection of the dead. 
The gospel must include this. In fact, it's no gospel at all without it, and it's not anything that a demon wouldn't believe. The gospel must include God's goal for humankind. He stated it all the way back in the first chapter of Genesis. He wants you to rule and to reign with Him on the earth. To do that, you need to be in a body that doesn't die. This is God receiving His inheritance. This is the victory of God. When what He said in Genesis 1 becomes a reality on the earth by Revelation 21. There are no different dispensations here. He never amends His plan. He had one goal from the beginning of humankind, and it's been complicated through our sin, but His plan has never changed. Are you still in Corinthians 15? Well, you should be. Here's verse 21. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn. Christ, the firstfruits, then when He comes, those who belong to Him. How could we preach a gospel that does not include God's goal for humankind? How could we cling to a gospel that emphasizes wealth or any other thing that is secondary to your glorification because of Christ's work? We're going to want to pay very careful attention to these next few verses. Are you all still with me? Here comes verse 24. Then the end will come. Now how could we have the gospel in the first three verses or the first ten verses if we still haven't gotten to the end? Then the end will come when He hands over the kingdom to the God the Father after. Somebody say after. He has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. That was not done at the cross. Not all authority, not all dominion, not all power has been destroyed. It was destroyed in Jesus, but it's very much happening here and happening all around us. There is still work to be done. The gospel is not a ticket to Disneyland. It is an invitation into a preternatural battle. And it ends up with you glorified with God. Look at verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Look, there are enemies in this city that are not yet under his feet. There may be enemies in this room that are not yet under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now we can't say that the last enemy to be destroyed is death if death has already been destroyed. Paul is still walking us through the gospel. The gospel includes putting death under your feet. Not, not in theory. In actual reality as you are glorified. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him. It is clear that this does not include God himself. Who put everything under Christ. When he has done this. Then the son will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. I'd like to talk to you about what that means. Do you want to hear it? The Davidic son and the Solomonic age. 
This comes from 1 Kings 5, and it is the passage that Paul is drawing on. Shockingly, Paul's gospel comes from the prophets exactly as he said it does in the first chapter of Romans. When Hiram, king of Tyre, heard that Solomon had been anointed king to succeed his father David, he sent his envoys to Solomon because he had always been on friendly terms with David. Solomon sent back this message to Hiram. You know that because of the wars waged against my father David from all sides, he could not build a temple for the name of the Lord his God until... Somebody say until. Until the Lord put his enemies under his feet. Do you recognize that phrase? It is an absolute and direct quote from Corinthians 15, except 1 Kings comes before Corinthians 15. But now, verse 4, The Lord my God has given me rest on every side, and there is no Satan, no adversary, or disaster. I intend, therefore, to build a temple for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord told my father David when he said, Your son, whom I will put on the throne in your place, will build a temple for my name. Those of you going through the foundation study with us know that David was a man of warfare, literally a man of blood. So is Jesus Christ. He is a man of blood and a man of warfare. And God will win this war. Solomon typifies the kingdom after all war, the millennial reign. This is Jesus Christ after the war with the nations, when Satan is bound and all enemies are under his feet. I want to talk to you about the Solomonic age. 1 Kings 4.12 has a stunning parallel with Matthew 19.28. Both speak about setting 12 rulers on thrones in Israel. Do you remember that Jesus said that to his disciples? First yeah. Kings 6 is when the temple is completed. It's after David has won the war with the nations. It is during the time that the Davidic son is on the throne that the temple is completed. That, that directly corresponds to Revelation 21. In First Kings 9, the nations stream to hear the wisdom of the Davidic son. This directly corresponds to Revelation 22. Paul said in Corinthians 15, 24, where we are picking back up, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. Friends, that is completely different than simply believing that Jesus Christ was crucified, buried, and resurrected. It goes further into the future. It gives you purpose and it includes your destiny. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. COVID is an enemy and it has to be put underfoot. All sickness is an enemy. You should not be surprised that we are still facing these things. That is part of the gospel. You cannot be stopped from facing them. They are a part of our life. But you can very well control how you handle yourself when you face them. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. Jesus Christ is 
divine. But he is also a human being. He is not above the Father. He shows himself in subjection to the Father as the first of the human crop that has been glorified to rule and reign with God. And you, my friends, are the rest of the crop. What we are doing right now is showing that we believe that is true in any and every circumstance. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. David made everything subject to God's kingdom so that Solomon could reign in perfect shalom. Here, Jesus is described as doing exactly the same. The gospel must include the believer's resurrection and a mandate that the believers bring perfect shalom in heaven and on earth. We must become one. Jesus is the first in the human race to be glorified and will, through the human race, bring everything in heaven and on earth into subjection of the Father. Let's talk all in all. Are y'all ready? Shalom, all in all, y'all. Hebrews 2 and verse 8. Do you recognize the phrase, and put everything under his feet? In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at the present, at the present, somebody say at the present, we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone and show victory over it, which is also your victory over it. More all in all, look at Ephesians 1.22, And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. Colossians 3 goes through this as well. What we have in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is the first human being to sit on the throne of God. We see His work completed in His own life, and now... The gospel includes that you as his body must continue that work and arrive at the same place. This is the gospel that Paul preached to the Corinthian church. Verse 29. Are you all still in Corinthians 15? Are you bored out of your mind? Now if there is no resurrection, still doing a very Jewish thing, anticipating objections and answering them. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead if the dead are not raised at all? Why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day. I mean that, brothers. Just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. As Paul is recounting the gospel that they are already supposed as knowing, 
He does a Jewish thing and that he anticipates every possible objection and is challenging them on it. This causes the Western reader to skip his line of thought. He's never stopped talking about the resurrection of the dead. What is more from this passage, if there's not a resurrection of every believer, then we might as well be like the people in Noah's day. Eating and drinking as judgment comes upon us. It also would mean God's plan had failed to have mankind as his co-regent rulers on earth. God wants human beings to rule with him. And he will not be denied. But that rule is contingent upon how you handle yourself right now. Do you want to get it right? Look at this warning in verse 33. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. In the context of his entire line of thought so far, not understanding the resurrection of the dead is a shameful ignorance in the body of Christ, and it is the result of sin. Shortcut preaching that alters the actual story to appear to get more decisions, I don't know for what. You don't know what you would do. There is no further plan for you. You've simply just agreed to something that even the demons agree to. This is sinful. No wonder so many fear sickness. No wonder so many fear death. They don't understand their destiny. Our destiny is to face every enemy of God and prevail. We are destined for victory. We have a victorious gospel. These are tune-ups for us. These are moments where we get to go, oh yeah, I'm so blessed I almost forgot I was in the ring. I'm so glad to have the opportunity to put something underfoot and show myself to be in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He continues to lay out the gospel and to answer questions, but he's still not done. There is a literary device coming that will let you know for certain when he's done. Verse 35, but someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. I thought it was a reasonable question. But that's because it's not Paul who showed up and preached the gospel to me first. I heard it from men who had perversions and alterations and deviations. And it's a miracle that I could still find the actual gospel in all of that. And I would like you to not have that problem. How foolish! What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as He has determined. And to each kind of seed, He gives its own body. All flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh. Animals have another. Birds another and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly body is one kind and the splendor of the earthly body is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another, and star differs from star in splendor. Man, this really ought to remind you of Genesis 15, 
which is where the concept of credited righteousness comes from. Genesis 15, he took him outside and said, look up at the heavens. Somebody say, look up. Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. This is both quantitative, as in numbering, and qualitative, as in the quality of the offspring will be like the heavenly stars. Paul understood that, which is why when speaking about the resurrection of the dead, he makes his point by talking about the sun, the moon, and the stars. Consistent language for the patriarch of Israel, his wife, and the twelve children. Consistent language throughout the law, the prophets, the writings. Carries all the way through Revelation 12. Quantitative, numbered like the stars, qualitative, heavenly substance, like the stars. The gospel starts at the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, but it must move on to the glorification of the human race, or it is not the gospel. Given the shape of the dire warnings we heard earlier, I would think that this would cause our ears to perk up. Let's pick up in verse 42. So it will be with the... Resurrection of the dead. Have you noticed that he's not talking about Jesus' resurrection since the first few verses? It is always about our resurrection. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. When believers are raised... They are imperishable, they are glorious, and they are powerful. There's a reason for that. It's God's glorified government made of humans. Here are three passages thrown at you quickly so that you can grasp what I'm saying. Revelation 22 is about the last statement in the Bible. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, and the bright... Morning star. Now nobody in here questioned that Jesus is the bright morning star. And after the preaching of the last ten or so messages, you shouldn't question that that is celestial language. Revelation 2, verses 26 through 28. They're truncated for you. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nation. Now Psalm 2 that has always been about Jesus is suddenly about anybody who overcomes. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give Him, the believer, the overcomer, the morning star. The gospel is about your glorification. How you handle sickness now might determine whether or not you get to be free from sickness for an eternity. I want you to notice the quote at the bottom of the screen. From the first, first moment in time and first importance, Paul shared the message I'm sharing with you with the Corinthian church. So long before he ever gets to the 15th chapter, while he's still in the 6th chapter discussing lawsuits, he says something very blatant. 
Don't you know that we will judge angels? He expected them to know it before he got to Corinthians 15 because this is the gospel he explained to them from the onset of his interactions with them. And he refers back to it. And apparently after discussing many problems in the church, he thought it best just to start back at the beginning again and address any concerns they have. Man, I wished I had been told this 30 years ago. When believers are raised, they are imperishable. They are glorious. They are powerful. And they will need to be since they are to rule and displace all of God's enemies. Friends, we are in boot camp right now. We are in training right now. And we have the opportunity to show heavenly faith in our daily actions simply by the smiles on our faces. You are a victorious church. There is no reason for us to sit in despair. There is no reason for us to talk lowly. It's time to get in the truck. It's time to say holiness or die trying. When you consider our eternity... These are light and momentary trials. I want to reemphasize to those that have come into this message half an hour and 45 minutes late. I passed by a testing facility today with thousands of people there. And they didn't all go to this church. In fact, I didn't see anybody that went to the church. Coming to this church does not cause COVID. They're getting it even when they don't come. But coming to this church may teach you how to handle COVID. Verse 44. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural and after that the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, pay careful attention to this, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. Every believer... Every single person that has put his faith in the, the work of the crucifixion and the subsequent resurrection and the ascension to the right hand of God will be exactly like the one who did those things. Not just in character, not just in number, in substance, in in quality. The gospel simply declares that all believers will be what and as Jesus is his glorified government is made of humans who are like him philippians 310 shares paul's thoughts on the subject i want to know christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings becoming like him in his death and so somehow miraculously as a mystery to attain to the resurrection from the dead paul was not hoping to go to heaven Paul was hoping to be glorified in a body that never died exactly as Christ is and to enforce heaven on earth, merging the two so that God would be all in all through celestial and terrestrial domains. 
John was just like Paul because they had the same gospel of the prophets, same gospel of God, same gospel of the Son, the gospel that Paul called my gospel. 1 John 3, 2, dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. Everyone who has this hope in Him purifies Himself. Just as He is pure. If you are called to be exactly what Jesus is, and a body exactly like His, and a job description like Him because you're a part of His body connected to Him, sitting on His throne as He sits on His Father's throne, Man, that ought to control your every thought. That ought to control your every action. There ought to be no fear-mongering in the body of Christ. We are destined to rise above those things, and we show that we are a part of it by doing it right now. Does anybody want to go with me? Look, to leave this out of the gospel is to render it impotent. Worse, it makes most of the Bible completely irrelevant. Well, 3,000 people got saved. Well, they don't know from what. They don't know to what. And have no idea what the goal and plan of God is. Paul is not done sharing the gospel. You will know for certain when you hear it. I even put it on a slide for you so you cannot miss it. Let's pick up in verse 50. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable... Inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. The last trumpet is called last for a reason. It marks the completion of God's judgment and the glorification of humankind as God's co-ruler. I want to give you a sampling of the way the trumpet is used in the Bible. In Exodus 19.19, a trumpet grew louder and louder as Yahweh's presence visited the mountain. The trumpet signified the coming of God. In Joshua 6.20, the last trumpet that was blown signaled the collapse of Jericho and the people of God went in and took the city. In 1 Kings one thirty four, there are literally two witnesses standing beside someone blowing a trumpet as Solomon begins to reign over Israel. What do you think that symbolizes? In Nehemiah 4.20, the trumpet call announces that God is fighting for His people and with His people. That is an incredible thing. In Isaiah 27, 13, the trumpet call gathers Israel and, quote, relieves them of perishing. They assemble on the mountain of the Lord as one people. In Matthew 24, 31, a loud trumpet call gathers the elect who are escorted by angels from every corner of the globe to where Jesus Christ is standing. In Revelation 10 and 11, A seventh angel, and I'm just going to tell you there were only seven, blows a seventh trumpet called the last trumpet. And in one chapter, he says the mystery of God is now accomplished. In the next chapter, he says the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our God. When Paul says last trumpet, don't you think he had these kind of things in mind? This is not just eschatology. 
In Paul's mind, this is the gospel. Look at verse 53. Are you all all in 53? I've been preaching for 59 minutes. And I think it's fair to say I'm showing more passion and enthusiasm than you are. So certainly you can stick with me a couple more minutes. For the perishable must. It what? The perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable. And the mortal with immortality. Can you imagine leaving a must out of the gospel? When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Now, am I mistaken or did Paul say the last enemy to be put down was death? And now he's describing what it looks like when death is put down. Didn't Paul say that God would be all in all? Well, death has to be put down before he's all in all. How could we preach a gospel that doesn't include victory and God reigning in all and through all? It's the point of the gospel. It's the culmination of the gospel. It's what the gospel is aiming at. Are you ready for the victory? Are you sure you're ready for the victory? Verse 55. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel of God is about the victory of the saint. It is not about Jesus Christ's victory alone. Jesus' victory proved that God could do it through a human being. And He is the first, and you are the second, third, fourth, unto thousands upon thousands of what God is building. This is the very reason that you're called the body of Christ. I want to talk to you about victory from the law, prophets, and writings in the Newer Testament. Matthew 12, 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. See how I've cheated here? Matthew quotes Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen. Now who is the servant? Jesus, the one I love and whom I delight, I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not stuff out till he leads justice to We don't have it yet. We're still contending for it. And we must be led by Him into it. What you do now definitely has an impact on the victory we're being led towards. Look at verse 21. In His name, in His name, the nations will put their hope. The gospel of Jesus Christ started in His resurrection and then includes the resurrection of every believer and that gospel has to be preached in every nation that God will put death under the foot of mankind not send us to a safety deposit box in the heavens revelation says it this way verse uh, chapter 15 and i saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire and standing beside the sea those who had been Those who had been over the beast and his image and over the number of his name 
All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Look at it in 1 John. It's very simple. This is the love for God to obey His commands. And His commands are not burdensome. They're not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. Why do you have to overcome sickness? Because it's the proof that you're born of God. Why do you have to have a victorious attitude? It is proof that you're born of God. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. You showing trust now in the ultimate victory that is still coming is proof that you are born of God and in the gospel. Friends, we don't get to have bad days. I would encourage you to stop talking about how tough things are. I would encourage you to quit posting online how difficult your circumstances are and get yourself inside of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In His light, you will begin to see light. If you are dwelling in something other than His light, you won't see light anywhere. Now I've made some bold promises that I've not yet fulfilled. So I want to fulfill them. Are you ready for the end of the gospel presentation by Paul? Look at verse 58. Therefore. Why are therefores therefore in the Bible? Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let that sink in for a minute. Stand firm in explanations. Stand firm in answered objections. Stand firm in what? Well, I'll make it very clear for you. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Let me show you how the gospel completion is text indicated here. This is the very first part of Corinthians 15. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel which I preached to you, which you've received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if... You hold firmly to the word I preached you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. Now the last verse. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. In what? In the gospel. Let nothing move you. From what? The gospel. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not... The same thing he said at the end of verse 2. If Paul had meant to truncate the gospel as preachers have meant to truncate the gospel, he wouldn't have finished Corinthians 15, 58 with the exact same words that he started his introduction with. The unabridged, bare-knuckle gospel must include your glorification. Now, how are you going to tell people that God has the power to glorify you and set you over all of the human... uh, I'm sorry, you as human beings over all of the creation... If we cannot get out of bed when we don't feel well. If we cannot assemble as believers. But you can. And you have. And you are here. I'm telling you where we find our source of strength. We stand in the victorious gospel. If you know where you are headed, you will know how to handle what you endure along the way. Anybody ever been on a long road trip? 
I know my family's only lightly experienced with that. Whatever comes your way between here and there is worth it because of what is on the other side. And if you whine and moan, I just want to tell you the truth, it only makes the trip longer. Church, you are the victorious bride of Jesus Christ. The gospel requires you to stand firm in the whole story. And you want to. Because it is a victorious story. The gospel tells you not to be moved from this story. And you don't want to be. Because it is a victorious story. The gospel requires you to give yourself fully to the work of this story. And you want to. Because it's a victorious story. Laboring in a different story is vain. Or worse, you'll end up like Ahimaaz. Running with no gospel at all. The very last thing that I have to tell you is that this is not the first pandemic and we are not the first people to face one. I'm quoting to you from Charles E. Rosenberg's famous work called The Cholera Years. Because in all of my spare time, I have nothing to do but research this for your encouragement. It's chronicling the years 1832, 1849, and 1866, which were cholera pandemics. I'm going to read to you a short passage. This is specifically about the year 1832. There had been 39 deaths that day, and it was common knowledge that many doctors didn't bother to report their cases. Earlier in the week, there were hundreds of deaths reported. Cartloads of coffins rumbled through the streets, and when filled, returned through the streets to the cemeteries. Dead bodies laid unburied in the gutters, and coffin makers had to work even on the Sabbath to supply the demand. Charles G. Finney, the evangelist, once recalled having seen five hearse pull up at the same time at different houses within the sight of his own front door. Harsh smoke from burning clothes and the bedding being burned filled the air and mingled with putrid fumes and there was the smell of burning tar and pitch, all of the, quote, time-tested preventatives. Houses stood empty. They fell prey to dust, burglary, and vandalism by mobs. By August, many of the churches were closed, especially those with wealthier congregations. St. George's shut its doors for the entire month. Its pastor wrote that three quarters of his flock were absent and would probably never be regathered. It was during the year 1832 that this secular historian writing, and he mentioned Charles Finney, that I found another quote from Charles Finney that's been in my Bible for almost 30 years. He wrote it in 1832. Revival comes from heaven when heroic souls enter the conflict determined to win or die. Or if need be, to win and die. That is the victorious gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't back up. We don't shut up. We don't let up. And we sure never go hide somewhere to avoid facing danger. We're going to rise up. We're going to rise up in victory on the inside. We're going to rise up in victory on the outside. We're going to show ourselves to be 
in the trust-grounded obedience of the victorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Who in this house will rise up with me? With every man and every woman and every child on your feet. We are going to go back into worship and I want to tell you what is going to happen. Those of you struggling in sickness, our God is going to meet us and you will recover. Those of you struggling in your faith, you're going to throw off everything that hinders you so that you can run with perseverance the race marked out for you. Those of you in need of spiritual empowerment, you're going to be filled with the Holy Ghost. Do you know how I can say these things? Because I'm not the one who said them. The gospel of Jesus Christ declares this victory is ours. All you have to do is believe it, to stand in it, and to fight for it. There are calls for corporate prayer meetings and I want them. There are calls for all kind of things going on right now. But there is nothing that is needed more than a victorious attitude in Jesus Christ. Now is your time to gain that and everything else will flow from it. Stretch your hands towards heaven. Father, we come to you now in our worship. Lord, we are not the tail, but you have made us a part of the body of Christ. We grab hold of your victorious 